99. Next week's the big 100. Yeah, and then next week is the big 100. And that episode, who are we doing on that episode? That's uh, well, we're going to do a show on Steve Marriott next week. That's uh, that's the 100 show. Yeah, from the Small Faces and Humble Pie and a bunch of other things. Uh, yeah, he's an interesting guy. But this week we got an important character, somebody that I've been wanting to do a show about for a while now because he came up in some of our you know, really good episodes like we did on the birds and on the stones exile on main street album. And that's Graham Parsons. Yeah. You know, what's funny about this guy as much as he wrote a lot of shit that's recognizable. He, none of the thing he ever wrote was a hit. Nah, he barely charted. Yeah. It's amazing. And he got a lot of shit that you hear. You're like, Oh, I know that. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it really is reflective of the time that he lived in because in those days, record companies would give you a shot. If, you, if your first album didn't even chart, same label might give you a second chance or even a third chance. And that's how we ended up with, with, with such great music over the years is people, people would be given a chance. Now that doesn't happen. You, know, no. you don't chart, that's it. You're gone. You're on the scrap heap of history, never to be heard from again. But you know, if you think about some of the most important albums ever made, you know, I mean, look at the look at the Stooges, for instance. Would would we even know about Iggy Pop? No, no. It, and it took a lot of years for him to be recognized. Yeah. Uh, s- same with like the Velvet Underground and a lot of important bands from the '60s. You know, they they uh, they had albums that sold next to nothing, but yet people that ended up being famous musicians and artists would listen to them, and and you know what I mean. Yeah, so it, let yeah, me, um, let's do the introduction. So this is episode 99 of The Rock Show, a road to 100 episode next week. Another huge show, and um, it's 2021. Everybody, happy new year. Hopefully your yep. new year happy started new better. Year. This, is, this is a brand new year. 2020 is over, thank God. Thank God. We're, 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 we're in the future now. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're doing a show about a guy that was a pretty famous guy in uh, history, especially rock and roll history and country would definitely be very, um, they'll be very, like, they put him in a very high pedestal. Even though the guy never had a, a hit, he wrote a lot of songs that are very, very recognizable. And we're talking about the world famous Grant Parsons. Yes, what you got Graham, today, Mike? Graham Parsons. Uh, you know, he was in The Birds. Uh, he made The yep. Sweetheart of the Rodeo album, which is yep. my, my personal favorite from the band. Uh, then he was also involved with, you know, being friends with Keith Richards. He was involved with The Stones during a period in, the, you know, their most, I think their most important period, probably from 68 to 72. Um, and all the countryish. Stone songs that you hear from that time, like Dead Flowers, Sweet Virginia, 
uh, yep. stuff off of Beggar's Banquet. That's all Richards being influenced by his relationship with Graham Parsons. So, you know, he's a very important guy. Uh, died young. Uh, yeah. Almost, almost 27. He was about two months, I think, short of 27 when he died. He, he's the first one to the 26 club. <laughs> 26 club. Yeah, well, you could say he's 27. He was in his 27th year. But, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a story of uh, tragedy. It's a story of determination. It's a story of love and hate. Uh, it's a story of excess, addiction, drugs, and some straight-up insanity when we talk about what happened after he died. We'll get into that. Oh, man, that's insane. You know what's crazy? You sent me that uh, video, the something, the Blazer Angel, I think it was. F- fall, fallen Angel. It's a documentary from 2004. Yeah, yeah, that was fantastic. It was about an hour and maybe 28 minutes. And they go. Little, to... I think, no, I think it was a little long. I think it was a little over an hour and a half. But was yeah, it an hour and a half? For some I reason, I got. I, for some reason, I thought it wasn't that long because I watched the whole thing. It was pretty yeah. good, but. Man, and and most of the most of the people in the band were pretty much alive. There's only another guy that died. Another his buddy died. Yeah, I mean, since then there's been some deaths uh, related, but uh, yeah. it, it it told the whole story, and I learned a lot from that documentary because, uh, you know, it's not a very well known story, and there's a lot of pieces to it and a lot of contradictions to it, uh, but. Yeah, I mean, let's just dive right in, man, because this is this is really interesting. Dude, how funny. Um, he had his mistress and his wife in the same documentary. Well, he was on his, you know, his wife and him were on the way out. So it yeah. wasn't like he was being a bad guy. He just found somebody else at the end of his life. But it was only yeah. in the last fine only the last final weeks, really. Yeah. Know? All right. But, so okay, let's get so into Gr- it. Right. Grant Parsons was born Ingram Cecil Connor the third on November 5th, 1946, in the Winter Haven area of Florida. Now, his father was named Ingram Cecil Connor II, and he was also known by the nickname of Coon Dog. Uh, his mom... Yeah, I thought was that was a weird Ingram, name, Coon Dog. <laughs> Coon Dog, Southern crap, you know. But his, yeah. his, his mom was, uh, was named Avis Connor. Uh, she grew up uh, with the maiden name of Avis Snively. And she was part of the Snively Fruit Company that exists in Florida. Uh, I'm not sure if it still does, but it was a very successful fruit company. And her father was like the CEO you know, of that company. So she grew up wealthy. Um, her family's company held a lot of land and power in the Winter Haven area and also in the Waycross, Georgia area. Okay. Uh, Ingram Connor II was actually a World War II flying ace. He received an Air Medal Award for his heroic service, and he was also present at Pearl Harbor. Uh, both the Graham's parents, unfortunately, were alcoholic. Um, his mother, Avis, would suffer sometimes from bouts of depression, and his dad suffered from what could only be called today as post-traumatic stress syndrome Yeah, uh, due, due to his, war, his time in the war. Um, they didn't have that diagnosis back then, but that's probably what he had. Uh, Graham also had a younger sister named after the mother Avis, also yeah. called Avis, and he was very close with her growing up. Uh, she was a few years younger than him. Graham's parents were not abusive at all to him, but there was always kind of an unhappiness about them uh, that was noticeable. Um, it came to a head 
1958, when, when Graham was, was just 12 years old, uh, his father sent Big Avis and Little Avis down to Winter Haven, uh, and they were living in the Waycross, Georgia area. Uh, Ingram Sr. had some work to do. Uh, instead, what happened that night, he committed suicide, shot himself in the head. Uh, you know, no, no one really understood why. Uh, he, he left a recording on a tape. And it only had the words, Graham, I love you on it. That was his final words. Uh, and that was actually two days before Christmas, 1958. So, wow. it, you know, the whole family was devastated, obviously, at the loss of, of, of Coondog. They all called him Coondog. Uh, they would relocate at that point down to Winter Haven to be with the Snively family. So they would go down there. Um, Avis would meet in a few years, a guy named Robert Parsons. Um, and she would remarry. She would marry yeah. him. Um, Robert and Graham bonded. Okay. They, you know, he was looking for a father, father figure. Robert was that guy. Uh, little Avis loved him too. And, and Robert Parsons would officially adopt both children, giving them his name. Now, all was not well as the Avis family kind of the Avis, uh, Avis's family, the, the, the mother's side, yeah. didn't trust, they didn't trust Robert Parsons. Uh, they felt that he was a philanderer. Uh, also, he might have been out for her money. Um, they just didn't trust him. And that was kind of a, an issue in the, in the household. Graham was also a very well-schooled student and very well-mannered Southern boy kind, kind of person. Uh, he became interested in rock and roll after actually seeing Elvis live when he was a kid. Yeah. Um, and that kind of changed his life. He was never the same after that. Uh, he hey, Mike, let start... me ask you a question, but this guy was, this guy was pretty rich also. Um, I, yeah, I, I think he, yeah, I wouldn't say he was as rich as her, obviously, you know. No, but he, he had, had his money. He had, he had business. Yeah, he had his businesses. Yeah, I think he owns. I think he owns some clubs. I'm not sure if that was before or after marrying her. Yeah, but he, but, he uh, the 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 the, the uh, grandparents' family had money. Like, I don't think that's oh, what yes. he, that, that's what I'm saying. I don't think he was worried too much about because he had money. He was well, a rich I, kid. I, that's I, what I meant. I, I'm talking oh, about you, him. You mean? Gra oh, you talking about Graham himself? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Gra Graham would. Uh, Graham. Money was the least of his problems. Yeah, okay, that's because, what I'm saying. Yeah, no, no, no. I thought you were talking about Robert Parsons. No, not Robert. Uh, I think Robert probably married to the money, but I'm talking about uh, the, the kids, you know? Yeah, no, Graham, Graham, like I say, money was the least of his problems. Yeah. He would have, like, you know, he'd have a trust fund his whole life, and he would live very well off that and be able to pursue, you know, a lot of things, okay? And But it was also his downfall in a lot of ways, too. Yeah. You know, because he because he didn't have that that that, uh, you know, when, when money's not an issue and you've got things like drugs going on in your life. You not know, a drugs. A that's a recipe for disaster right there. Yeah. Uh, now, um, like I said, Graham was very well schooled. He was he was a good southern boy. He loved rock and roll. Uh, he also loved folk music growing up. And he was especially influenced by the Kingston Trio. Now, his family like like we'd say, was wealthy. And Avis, with her new husband, Robert, kind of began to live a little more lavishly than they had in the past. 
they would totally support Graham in all his musical endeavors. And as a teenager, they provided him with guitars and other equipment that he would need. Uh, there would also be a music room in the basement of their house. Okay. Um, some bands he would have very early on was called the Pacers. One was called the Legends. Uh, his stepfather owned some clubs in the Winter Haven area in which he would play when, when Graham was like about 17 in 1963. Uh, he had put together uh, his first real professional band. It was a folk act called the Shilohs. And uh, they were kind of similar to the Kingston Trio. And they were based out of Greenville, uh, Greenville South Carolina. Uh, Graham was still in school. In fact, all of them were still in school. Uh, so he would only play selected gigs with the Shilohs. Um, but the, the band did manage to play the Florida Exhibition at the 1964 World's Fair in New York City in Queens. Yep. Uh, each state had a, a, a representative of their state for certain things, and, and they actually represented Florida, the Shilohs. Uh, they were actually courted at that point by the famous folk music manager, Albert Grossman. Uh, he was going to book them at the Bitter End, a bunch of shows over at the Bitter End on Bleecker Street, but backed off after kind of finding out that the band was all still in high school. Uh, so by 65, the Shilohs would record in South Carolina at the uh, Bob Jones University, but the band would, would break up that year kind of amid the changing musical scenes going on, um, and folk music kind of was, you know, if you remember our Birds episode, yeah. Folk music, folk music was was going bye bye by 1965, yeah. and acts like the Birds would have folk incorporated into their rock sound. So that's it became kind of folk rock, and that was something that they they really weren't interested in doing. So his home life in '65 really was not going very well. Robert Parsons would get caught having an affair on Avis, okay, yes. and that sent her into like a tailspin with her drinking. Uh, she would be hospitalized and actually diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, she would die on June 5th, 1965, the day Graham would graduate from high school. She died. Wow. Um, yeah. So Graham was, you know, considering on attending Harvard University. And his grades, however, were not quite good enough. So but he, was, strong... he was admitted. Yeah, yeah, but what happened was the reason he got in wasn't based on his grades. His grades were a little no. subpar, but he got in because he had a very strong admissions essay. He wrote an essay, and they loved it. So he was actually considering studying theology. Uh, he had a friend named Jet Thomas that attended Harvard Divinity School, which is part of, of Harvard up, up in Massachusetts. But in reality, <laughs> when he got there, he barely attended class at all. Uh, you know, he only did like one semester there and he got thrown out. Uh, you know, he used to spend a lot of his time uh, trying to put a band together. He eventually would. Okay. He did a lot of acid. He was experimenting with that and uh, really didn't go, to, didn't go to class all that much. Now, apparently, um, a friend of his uh, would introduce him to a country singer named Merle Haggard. Oh, yeah. Okay? And you remember we did a show on him, too. Yeah. Um, and, and, and when he first heard Merle Haggard, he made the decision that 
he was going to go country. Yep. Never mind, never mind folk. He was going to go country. Uh, but he would be thrown out of Harvard by early 1966. Now, during this brief stay at Harvard, he met musician John Noose. He's the guy who introduced him to Merle Haggard. And uh, Noose was a guitarist for a local rock group called The Trolls. And Graham was a member at that point, kind of like a semi-serious folk band called The Like, L-I-K-E, The Like. But Noose, you know, convinced him that, you know, you love country music, you're really into this, you, you got to do, do country music. And he would, he would, he would agree to that. And uh, Noose would, would leave the Trolls and form a band with Graham called the International Submarine Band. What a name. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually based on the old, um, the old Little Rascals episode. Yeah, where they where they start an ep, uh, they start a group called the International Silver String Submarine Band. Oh yeah, do, do you remember that. that one? Yeah, 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 yeah. And they play the music; they're like horrible. They got all yeah. the instruments. Yeah, yeah. So um, they started this International Submarine Band, and Parsons would sing and play guitar. Noose play guitar. Uh, they had a guy named Ian Dunlop on bass, and then Mickey Govin on drums. Um, Immediately, the band would relocate to New York City. Okay, they would get out of the Massachusetts area. Uh, they thought they had a better opportunity playing in New York. And, and Graham would actually rent a house in the Kingbri Kingsbridge section of the Bronx. All right. And they managed at that point to get signed by a small label named Gold Star Records. And they recorded two singles and an album, which would be lost. It would never be released. Um, the two singles would be released. It was a cover of Johnny Mandel's song, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, from the movie of the same name that was popular at the time. And then there was another song called Some Up Broke. Both of them bombed. They didn't chart. Okay, but the album itself that they recorded for Gold Star would be lost. No one knows what that sounds like. But Graham would not let failure kind of stop him. He was very driven. He had befriended actor... Barden DeWild, and DeWild had said he could get the group appearances in movies. So the, the idea was to move out to Los Angeles. And in November 66, Graham went out to the Laurel Canyon area in California to check out the scene. Now, <laughs> there's a legendary thing that happened here. It was, it was during this kind of scouting, uh, scouting session that he had, okay, this trip to go out to LA to see what was up, that he ended up at a party at David Crosby's house, who was in the birds yeah. at the time. Okay. <laughs> and he went to this party and David Crosby was engaged to a, 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 an actress named Nancy Cross. And it just goes that at this party, Graham stole her from David Crosby. Wow. He, he went up to her and he's like, you know, you're somebody that I've wanted to know all my life. That kind of, that kind of, that kind of, you know, line. And uh, they began a torrid affair. She left David, David Crosby, and uh, they had this big affair. And she promised with her connection as an actress to find the International Submarine Band some representation in L.A. Now, Parsons, at that, this point, was using his trust fund from his mother's family. Okay, And he bought a house for the band. And so he relocated everybody from the Bronx to Los Angeles. Uh, they would live in the house and he would be living with Nancy Ross at her place. 
Uh, Brandon DeWild, his actor friend, um, introduced Graham to Peter Fonda, who got the band to make an appearance in a new movie he was shooting called The Trip. Okay. And the song that they were going to do was a track called Lazy Days. Uh, but it ended up being rejected by, I believe, Roger Corman, who was the director. Um, th- what they did was they used the band in the appearance. Uh, it's a scene like it's like in a f- hippie apartment type place of hippie party is going on. And you see like Graham and the other guys on like a little tiny stage in the corner with all this, you know, psychedelic shit going on. And you hear a song. And it was supposed to be Lazy Days. They were going to do their own song. But they used music by a band called the Electric Flag instead. So you have the appearance of the International Submarine Band, but it's not one of their songs that you're hearing. So um, this kind of frustrated the band, and, and, and the, uh, they couldn't find any real commercial success. Yeah. So they, could, they couldn't even get a lot of gigs. The original lineup would break up because Dunlop and Gorvin wanted to go do their own thing. And Parsons and Noose would stay together to try to keep something going or get a new band together. Uh, the split up was an amicable one. Okay, they, they all would remain friends, uh, which is something that I noticed in my research. Graham kind of did like he didn't burn too many bridges behind him. Nah. A lot of people, a lot of people would come back to play with him again, record with him and stuff like that. Um, now, just a few days before this breakup with the International Submarine Band, there would be a record producer named Susie Jane Hokum. Uh, She would catch them at a rehearsal and was really impressed with them. And she was actually going out with Lee Hazelwood, okay, uh, who was a musician, a famous producer, and he also owned the record label LHI Records. Yep. Okay. And uh, he's known for some work he did with Nancy Sinatra and, and other people. Interesting guy. We should probably do a podcast on him at some point. Yeah. Um, she convinced uh, Lee to sign Parsons and Noose to an exclusive contract as the International Submarine Band. And they began a search for new musicians right away. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like one door closes, another door opens. The International Submarine Band is not over. They just need to get some new people. And they hired Nashville Sessions drummer John Cornell and three other session musicians, uh, Joe Osborne on bass, Earl Ball on piano, and J.D. Manis on pedal steel guitar. Now, this newly formed international submarine band would record in July 1967 a new single called Luxury Liner, and its B-side would be a track called Blue Eyes. Now, four months later, in November of that year, Chris Etheridge would replace Joe Osborne on bass and the band would record their only album called safe at home. Um, Excuse me. um, Two more Graham Parsons uh, compositions would be recorded for that album. A song called strong boy. And do you know how it feels to be lonesome? Yeah. The album was about, the album was mostly covers with just a few originals. They did like, uh, Johnny Cash's Folsom Prison Blues in a medley with That's All Right Mama by Elvis. And they, they, it, was, it was a mix. And, you know, it, it was a mix of like rock and roll, early rock and roll and country. Yep. And it was something that 
that really hadn't been done before. And, you know, uh, Graham had this idea of what he called cosmic American music. And it was basically, uh, you know, the seeds of what would be country rock. Yeah, country but rock. His, uh, his, yeah, like, and, and you got to remember, like, in the 60s, that didn't exist. Country music and rock was like oil and water because as it became the late 60s, the psychedelic, the hippie era, country music was frowned upon. It was considered conservative. He was, you know, it was kids. Yeah. He was almost like the first form of, um, you could almost consider like a real first form of almost uh, Southern rock. Well, yeah. I mean, Southern rock would, would what they would do is they would that didn't exist com- either, yeah. No, no, that didn't really exist either. Yeah, definitely bands like Lynyrd Skynyrd and stuff that started that, Molly Hatchet, they had to be listening to what Graham was doing. Yeah, okay, sure. Uh, but, but also stuff that would be even bigger than that, like bands like the Eagles, okay? The Eagles didn't exist at that point, all right? But in the 70s, they, they would incorporate some of that, you know? And in fact, it, it, you know, there'd, there'd even be some, some, some of the same players, Okay, Graham knew guys that ended up being in the Eagles later on. Yeah. Okay. But um, now, um, four months later, like I said, there would be those replacements and and Safe at Home would be recorded. Uh, But during the making of Safe at Home, Graham Parsons met Chris Hillman, who was the bass player of the Birds. They actually met in a bank. And Hillman had heard of him, okay, probably from – from stealing Crosby's girl. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But also he did, he was aware of, of Graham's musicianship. Uh, Hillman explained that the birds were looking for a jazz pianist, keyboardist, and Parsons passed an audition in February of 68. And he joined the group. Okay. Crosby had left at that point. All right. Uh, Michael Clark had also left the band. So they were actually looking for a, a drummer as well. Okay. Now, Safe at Home by the ISB, International Submarine Band, was due for release, but Parsons, like, ignored it, all right? I mean, now, now he's with the birds, so he's, he's moved on. But in essence, the International Submarine Band kind of broke up because of that, and Lee Hazelwood would shelve the album for a time, okay? Because, you know, he didn't want to put out anything from a, a band that didn't even exist anymore. But, you know... Looking back, that's probably, you know, Lee Hazelwood was more of a, a musician than a businessman. So it probably was a bad business move. He should have put it out right away anyway. Okay, but we'll get back to that because that, that comes into play soon. Um, once Crosby and, and Michael Clark left in late 67, they would replace Clark with Kevin Kelly on drums. Yep. And now he would join around the same time as Graham joined the band. Now, Graham and Kelly technically were never total members of the birds. They were always on salary. Okay. For their time in the group, Chris Hillman, who championed for Graham right away. Okay. Claims it was really the only way that they could get Graham to show up on a regular basis. Okay. He, you know, Graham was, was very flighty, irresponsible kind of young. Okay. Uh, he was in his, you know, early twenties at that point. Uh, he may or he may not show up for practice, but by keeping him on salary, it made sure that he always showed up. Okay. Immediately Parsons would switch over to rhythm guitar, even though he was playing keyboards, 
he would shift over to, to guitar. Um, he was very strong-willed and dedicated to kind of making the Birds a country band. And he kind of grabbed the reins of the group a little bit away from Roger McGuinn, which was, you know, he had to have some strong personality yeah. to be able to do that. Um, now, uh, Hillman was an original member of the band, and he would be convinced that this was the way to go, to go country. Uh, they all love country music, but Roger McGuinn would kind of resist this a little bit, but eventually agree on that decision. Yeah. So at that point, the, the seeds to the album, The Sweetheart of the Rodeo, would be born. Now, originally, Sweetheart of the Rodeo was going to be a double album of all types of American popular music yeah. done, done in, a, in a beginning to end sequence, starting with bluegrass, uh, country and western, jazz, R&B, rock and roll. And then it was going to end with like electronic space age music. Okay. But due to Graham kind of starting to grab the reins of the birds, a lot of the influence was coming from him. Uh, and, and Hillman backed him on this. Uh, McGuinn would, would dump that concept and he would agree to make an all country album. The band would relocate down to Nashville in March of 68 to begin recording this album. And Parsons' compositions, 100 Years From Now and Hickory Wind, were recorded as well as Dylan covers, Woody Guthrie stuff, and Merle Haggard songs. Um, recording would be done in May at the Columbia Studios in Hollywood, and the sessions would be finished, but a problem kind of arose. Lee Hazelwood of LHI Records still had Parsons under contract and threatened legal action. So what McGuinn did in kind of a panic, and remember we talked yeah. about this during the Birds episode, is he actually took Graham's vocals off of the three, off of three out of the six tracks that Graham was singing on for the album. Um, the songs You're Still On My Mind, Life in Prison and Hickory Wind would, would remain with, with Graham singing the lead. Um, Graham hated this. Okay. He felt that McGuinn fucked up the album. Uh, I have my suspicions in my, in my research. It wasn't all about Lee Hazelwood. It was a little bit about, Graham singing half the album. <laughs> yeah, McGuinn was, yeah. I mean, look, you know, McGuinn was the, was kind of the captain of that group. I mean, they, they all, they all had their, their say, but, and he was a founding member and, and he was the lead singer of, of the birds, though there would sometimes be trade-offs. Crosby would sing, but, but, you know, Graham came in and said he was going to sing six out of the 12 songs. So, I think there was a little more to it than, than just the, uh, because why would you, yeah, definitely. Why, why, you might take, you might take you might take six songs off with him singing. You know what I'm saying? He, he left three. Yeah. So it was kind of like a little different, but as sweet out of the rodeo was, was getting its finishing touches. The birds went to England for some gigs and it was here that Graham began a friendship with Keith Richards from the stones. Now the friendship would be a close one with Parsons kind of, introducing Keith to country music. Keith was familiar with country music, but he, you know, being a Brit, probably not being exposed to a lot of it. Uh, you know, he, he, he needed someone like, like Graham to kind of teach him the ropes and things that he didn't know. Okay. So during that time, at that point, Parsons, Mick Jagger, Richards and birds members, Hillman and McGuinn, they made a trip to Stonehenge. Okay, one time and hung out there and 
you know, I guess who knows, who knows what they did, but I can only imagine. But, uh, after a few days, the birds were supposed to travel on to South Africa. And Graham was told by Keith Richards about the situation there in South Africa and how the shows were segregated, uh, black and white, no matter what the promoters told you. Okay. They would tell acts, oh, yeah, you know, you're going to be playing in front of a mixed audience. And then they would get down there and it wouldn't be. All right. So, you know, it was apartheid was at its height and, and a lot of bands just refused to play that. And the Stones were one of those bands. Uh, so Graham announced to the birds that he wasn't going to go to South Africa. He's not doing that leg of the trip. And the band was pissed. OK, because they, you know, in, in, in hindsight, they often say that they were kind of naive. They, they should have realized that the, the shows would be segregated. But they took the promoter's words for it and said, no, we're playing in front of mixed crowds. And, and you know, Graham, you should join us. But he didn't want to go. OK, so he that was his that was the end of him with the birds. He, he left. the. Band. I think he just that wanted to it. hang out with the Rolling Stones. I don't think that's oh, all absolutely. it was. Absolutely. It had nothing to do with. He just well listen, if you were if you were if you were twenty two years old and you have a chance to hang out with the Rolling Stones and your band has only got you on salary, I don't know, you and you got money, you don't need the money, yeah. <laughs> you might you might you might hang out with the Stones, okay? Um, and you know, you know just the, Keith Richard had way yeah. better drugs than the birds. There you go. I'm sure. I'm sure that had something to do with it. Um now during this time he would also meet uh, a guy named Phil Kaufman. Uh, he was a guy who was working with the Stones. He was an American, uh, as a, I believe a roadie kind of capacity. Um, and, but he was also friends with the band. Um, he would retain that friendship with Phil Kaufman for the rest of his life. And then that'll be important later on. We'll talk about it. Um, while staying with Richards. Okay. Because what happened was when they threw him out of the birds, Keith felt bad. He was like, Oh man, I just got you guys to get you thrown out of the birds. But, uh, he kind of took them in to his house and they were hanging out for a while, jamming, uh, playing like obscure country music records. Uh, they, he was hanging out with them while they were recording uh, Beggar's Banquet. Yep. Okay. And if you listen to Beggar's Banquet, that's really the, the first Stones album to, to really have country songs on it. Okay. Country influence songs on it. Uh, Dear Doctor, Factory Girl. Yep. Uh, you know, all kinds of country influenced tracks. Um, Parsons eventually would, would, would split from the stones and return back to LA. And he would seek out Chris Hillman at this point from the birds. And he wanted to start a new band and Hillman was actually kind of growing weary of the birds. What happened was when they did the South African trip and played in front of segregated audiences, they caught a lot of flack for that when they got back to America. A lot of bad write-ups about the birds doing that, that they shouldn't have done it. And there was some tensions in the band as to what direction they were going to go. Um, Sweetheart of the Rodeo didn't do that well commercially. Um, McGuinn, you know, I think wanted to get off that, that country music train right there. And Hillman probably still wanted to go with it because what would happen is he would leave the birds and he would start a band with, uh, with Parsons called the flying burrito. Yes. Uh, yeah. Now he would switch over to guitar at that point and they would bring in bassist Chris Etheridge and pedal steel player sneaky Pete Kleino. Okay. Uh, the concept of the band 
was something that Graham wanted to do for a while. And, you know, it was that cosmic American music thing that he had going in his head. It was a mix of what he called, uh, what was called the Bakersfield sound in country music. Acts like Buck Owens and Merle Haggard were from, were from Bakersfield. Uh, a mix of that California sound, um, combine it with kind of soul music, black soul music and psychedelic rock. And the band's image, Flying Burrito Brothers would, would be original too. They would all wear nudie suits. Okay, now nudie suits is something that, you know, only the most country of country acts would wear. Yeah. Okay, there, there was a, a fashion designer, his last name is Nudie. Uh, he had a shop in California, I believe in Hollywood or something. And country acts would buy these suits. Now, if you see a nudie suit, you know what it is. A lot of colors, uh, you know, bright. Uh, they would they would wear uh, country acts would wear them. Everybody would wear the same suits, that kind of thing. You know, if you go now, to the um, Nashville um, Country um, Hall of Fame, that suit, his suit is there. Grandpa's nudie suit. Well, it's yeah, there. I, I got to describe. I got to describe his suit, okay? Because everybody kind of had a custom made suit. They didn't all wear. The same thing. Yeah. Graham's, Graham's suit had like marijuana leaves. Of like marijuana yeah. leaves, second second all and two and all pills. Yeah. Okay, we're on there. And on the back, he had a, a cross. Yeah. Okay, with like with like, you know, looked like it was beams of light coming out of it, different colors. Yeah. Uh, very original, I'd have to say. Now the other guys also had kind of custom made suits as well, um, but musically. Hillman and Parsons could write together brilliantly, all right, which I'm sure started with the birds, but really came to fruition here. Uh, tracks like Christine's Tune and Sin City were classics, in my opinion, yeah. and they were mixed. They were mixed in with uh, kind of a soul music sound. They did tracks like uh, the uh, uh, what the heck is it? The Dark End of the Street, uh, and then there was a track, a soul song called Do Right Woman. Everybody knows that yeah. one. They also did, they would put a country, you know, twinge on it. Okay. And it all came together on 1969's The Gilded Palace of Sin, which was the Flying Burrito Brothers debut album. Now, bass player Chris Etheridge contributed uh, uh, some work with Parsons on the track Hot Burrito 1 and 2. And that's two of their most famous songs. The bass player actually wrote with Parsons with that. Uh, they went through a series of drummers and could, that really couldn't cut it when they were making the album. But when they were done with the album, they settled in with ex-Birds drummer Michael Clark. And once that album was completed, he, he, he would join up for the live shows. The album got released in February of 69, but it, it failed to kind of catch on. It only got to number 164 on Billboard eventually. But it, 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 even though that happened, it was creating a little bit of a buzz because Bob Dylan was asked by Rolling Stone magazine that year what he was listening to. You know, somebody just said, what, are you, what new acts are you listening to? And he said, I'm listening to the Flying Burrito Brothers album. I love it. Yeah. So critics at that they point. They hated it. Again. They, well, I don't know if they so much hated it. They didn't know what to make of it. And they didn't know if they were even serious. Yeah, that's all. okay. Because the the idea of a yeah, I mean the idea of a of of, of a country rock hybrid was unheard of. Country music was about as you know uh, you know 
far away from the rock and roll consciousness as ever. Okay. And it was, you know, in some circles it was considered like, you know, uh, Republican conservative right wing, uh, music. Yeah, some people hated and, it. You know, some people hated it. Some people loved it. It had a, it was very mixed received. Yeah, well, the album was okay, and, and and even when they would play live, a lot of the audiences were kind were kind of confused. Yeah. They, they didn't know what to make of the band. But which I mean, to me, if that happens, you're probably onto something. Okay, but it, you know, again, country rock wasn't a genre. So what do you call these guys? Okay, they didn't know they didn't know yeah. what to make them. Were they country? Were they rock? What were they? So the band would do an interesting thing. They would embark on a cross-country train tour. Graham sometimes was afl- afraid to fly. That's kind of why they did it. But he liked taking trains all over the place when he could. And he convinced the band members to come along. So the train ride across the country was absolutely insane. All right, And, and Graham and the band spent it basically tripping on acid, peyote. Uh, they did tons of cocaine. And basically, we played like a weeks long poker game that just continued constantly on the train because there was nothing else to do. And uh, they lost all their money. Whatever money they had was was lost in this poker game with everybody. But the shows they did along the train tour were actually kind of erratic, obviously drug fueled. But things would kind of peak for them when they got to Philadelphia. They actually opened for the birds. Wow. Okay. And Parsons would join the birds on stage mid set and do a rendition of Hickory wind and you don't miss your water and the famous country song, the long black veil. He actually still had a somewhat good relationship with the band. Wow. But um, after, after the tour, they would return to Los Angeles and record a new single called the train song. Okay. Obviously, they wrote it on the train. Um, what they did was they brought in uh, 1950s R&B legends Larry Williams and Johnny Guitar Watson uh, to produce the single. Now, the band spent a lot of money on promoting it, just pretty much whatever they had made from the tour, but it flopped. And bass player Chris Etheridge would leave at this point. Okay, So Chris Hillman would switch from guitar to bass like he had done at one point in the birds as well. And they would bring in Bernie, uh, Bernie lead on or let on. Okay. And he was brought in on lead guitar. Yeah. Now it was around. Yeah. It was around this time that Graham's drug intake was starting to get out of hand. Okay. He was beginning to take harder drugs. All right. Heroin was becoming an issue. And, uh, when the stones came to America in the summer of 69 to promote, let it bleed. Uh, he joined them along the way, okay, and partied with Keith Richards every night. So at this time, Graham officially was a trust fund baby. Right? Yeah. And getting a $30,000 per year salary from his family, which at, if you translate it to now is close to $300,000 a year. So the burritos suffered during this time. Graham was, was non-existent. Uh, they were they they were playing. You know, when he did show up to for gigs, the audiences were dwindling. There weren't that many there, and they were playing small nightclubs. All right, but at one point during the Stones tour, Mick Jagger even had to tell Graham, "Listen, you got a you got a band. You got to be more serious. Get back to them and be more serious and stop hanging out with us." But um, 
Graham's relationship with the Stones would be rewarded because the Flying Burrito Brothers would be booked to play Altamont, okay, the, the infamous Altamont Music Festival yep. in December of 69. And they did a short set of uh, Six Days on the Road, and they did a version of Boney Maroney and a couple other songs. And after the show, Parsons left on the helicopter with the Stones. All right. Uh, rumor has it, too, that he spent the whole show backstage trying to seduce Michelle Phillips from the Mamas and the Pops. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, his, his, uh, the song Six Days on the Road is actually in the movie Gimme Shelter about the, about the festival. Yep. Okay. Uh, you don't really see the band much, but you hear the song and the audience's reaction to it. Everybody had a good time. I think they were one of the first people to come on. Okay. For the, for the gig. Now, A&M Records, who had signed the Burrito Brothers, wanted to possibly recoup some of the losses from the first album. And they put them in the studio in early 1970. Originally, their manager thought an album of countrified pop songs would work. But after doing that a little bit in the studio, they scrapped that idea to do originals. But they didn't have the, the, the... budget that they had for the first album so it would have to be done on the cheap now barney uh excuse me bernie Leon and chris hillman and graham hastily wrote this second album okay which would be called burrito deluxe yep. and it got released in april 1970 the stones would do a, a solid for them again okay and uh give them a track that would be one of their most well-known songs because they would record it right after and that's wild horses um the burrito deluxe album would feature the very first recording of that song and even the stones you know they would next year it would come out on sticky fingers their version of it keith richards to this day says the definitive version of that song is the flying burritos version okay uh, that's a big compliment it is, it is. And uh, not too many people get a Stone song written for them, you know, given to them. So, you know, he, he, was, he was tight with those guys, especially Keith. Um, another strong track on the hastily put together album was a song called Older Guys. But this album failed commercially as well, okay? It, it didn't really chart high at all. Uh, Parsons became more and more uninterested in the band, and Hillman would become tired of his friend's unprofessional behavior. Uh, Graham would, would leave after that second album was made in 1970. And again, it was an amicable split. Yep. All right. Uh, it was just, you got to go, go your separate ways. And the band would actually make one more album without Parsons and kind of Hillman in charge before breaking up in 1971. And it's not a bad album. I, I listened to it last night. As a matter of fact, I hadn't heard it in a while. Um, and uh, I always forget that Graham is not on it, okay? Because it carries over kind of a very similar sound from the second Yeah. Album. But um, in early 70, Parsons had moved in with producer Terry Melcher. Mm-hmm. Now, you remember that yeah. name. It's come up a few times. Uh, Melcher worked with the Birds. Yeah. And, and the Beach Boys. Paul, Paul Revere, and the Beach Boys and, and Paul Revere and the Raiders as mm-hmm. well. Um, he even had his own band called the Rip Chords, and he was a musician himself. And Graham had at that point signed a solo deal with A&M Records. And it seemed like these two would have a working relationship musically 
uh, not just with Melcher being a producer, actually musically. Uh, but drug buddies. When they moved, <laughs> they, when they moved in together, that kind of became what it was all about. And whatever you know, sessions they did musically together in studios or you know wherever they were, it's all lost. Nobody has the tapes, all right, because nobody was ever clear if 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 Graham or Terry had them. Uh, basically what's known about those sessions is they did a lot of dope and a lot of coke. So, you know, that wasn't going to happen. Um, now he had nothing going on basically. Okay. And, and, and Graham would join the stones again on their sticky fingers tour, hanging out with them in 71 on the UK leg of their tour, actually. And the stones had started a new label at that point called rolling stones records and they were looking to sign people. And Graham was kind of hoping he would get put on that label. But at this point, also, Richards was considering recording an album with Parsons, like the two of them. It's like a duo. Wow. But yeah, but it never materialized. And, and uh, the Exile on Main Street sessions would begin. OK, and if you remember our show yeah. on that, that was that was recorded in the south of France. Yeah. Um, Richards had rented a, that big kind of castle mansion called Villa Nelcott, okay, or Nelcotti. My French is not good. Uh, but he moved in there with, with Richards and, uh, and his girl, Anita Paulenberg. Parsons w- went there with his girlfriend um, and hung out, okay? And, you know, the amount of heroin Richards was doing at that point is, like, legendary, all right? And, and, and Parsons was basically with him kind of keeping up yeah. all right and and it's it's unclear uh uh you know i'm sure it's it's unclear to everybody because i'm sure the stones don't even remember half of it but but you know no one really knows how much parsons is on exile on main street they think that he's singing back up on sweet virginia okay but it's like never been proven but during his stay uh two things are clear first of all when they weren't recording Exile, uh, he was with Richards, just immersing him again in country music. Okay, and there's a lot of country influence on that album as well, and you can hear it. Um, the other thing is clear, is that he he became kind of a pain in the ass. He was a burden. Yeah. All right, because you know if he if he wasn't playing with Richards, he kind of was out of it high or fighting with his girlfriend, Gretchen Burrell, okay? And uh, eventually, Paulenberg, Anita Paulenberg, asked them to leave, okay? But kind of in recent years, there's been a story that's come to light that Mick Jagger may have actually been the impetus to get Parsons out of there. And that was because he was spending a lot of time with Richards. I think that Jagger saw... Graham as a little bit of a threat. Yeah, he might get my okay, buddy out of Yeah, he might pull my buddy out of the stones, and without Richards, I'm nothing. Okay, you can't have the stones without Keith, yeah. Richards. Keith Richards. So, uh, you know, that, that it, and again, these are all just speculations. Nobody's ever admitted to that. Jagger hasn't, but it's probably something true. So, on the next tour in 1972, when Exile came out, Parsons was not around. He was not welcome. Okay, Uh, in 71, Parsons would marry Gretchen Burrell 
at his stepfather's estate in New yeah. Orleans. <clears throat> now, you, you got to realize when Robert Parsons, what he did was when, when, when Avis died of cirrhosis of the liver, he remarried the kid's babysitter. Okay, the, the, the kids, when they were kids, he, rem- he married their babysitter after that. All right, and there was some story that came to light also around this time in the family that Avis, you know, was dying of cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, she may have asked her husband for like one drink and he may have given it. That's to what her. The, yeah, that's the like, rumor. Speculation. Snuck, yeah, like, snuck, you know, snuck it into the hospital and that is what killed her. And that was back in 1965. We're talking 1971. Yeah. This is already six years later. Now, he denied it. He said he didn't do that. Okay, but Parsons and his youngest sister, Avis, kind of believed it, all right, and, and at least for some point. And also the fact that he married their babysitter, you know, really was a bit of a scandal, okay? And uh, through 71, Graham visited friends in England with Gretchen, and eventually he would kick his heroin habit at least for a little while. And uh, when he came back from England, he did a one-off gig with the Flying Burrito Brothers. Uh, He also would kind of have a life-changing moment at this point. And it was when Chris Hillman, who he was reconnected with, asked him to go down to D.C. with him to check out a country singer who was playing named Emmy Lou Harris. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was totally impressed. He saw her. She was fantastic. Uh, she had a beautiful voice. He would call her up on the phone and introduce himself after that gig. Uh, Emmy Lou kind of, you know, supposedly didn't know who he, who he was and Graham had to explain. But uh, the two became friends. And after a year of, of hanging out, being friends, talking music, in mid-72, Graham got signed to a deal with Reprise Records. And he also at that point, asked Emmy Lou to join him on the upcoming solo record he was going to make. He kind of envisioned them as a singing couple like George Jones and Tammy Wynette. Yes, he did. Okay. And originally, what was going to happen is Merle Haggard was supposed to produce this album. All right. He had never met Merle. Uh, he was introduced to him. He got to meet him. Uh, they met. They had a, an afternoon together. Apparently, it went well. Uh Merle was going to produce it. And then right before their second meeting, Merle canceled the whole thing and gave no explanation. Okay. Uh, it's never been kind of explained why that happened, but Graham was crushed by that. You know, it was like his idol, you know, doing that to him. So he did have a stroke of luck. Um, he managed to get Elvis's band. Yeah, the TCB TCB, right. Which stands for taking care of business. Okay. That's what that means. And uh, that band was led by guitarist James Burton, who basically influenced everybody who picked up a guitar ever, okay, basically, from, from the 50s on, okay? If you, his, there used to be James Burton books. You would learn to play guitar based on, on what he did. Um, he had also played with Merle Haggard as well, James Burton. Um, and Elvis's band didn't, play with anybody okay not just anybody you had to be special 
So the fact that he got them, it was a big catch. You know, he got his drummer, he got his bass player as well. All right. Uh, the sessions for the album of what would be called, uh, it was titled GP for Grant Parsons, ran from September through October of, of 72. Uh, I'm sorry, seven, uh, yeah, 72. Um, Blind Faith bassist Rick Gretsch was brought in to produce it. Uh, Parsons loved this, that he had all this talent around him, but he was also kind of intimidated. All right. Uh, you know, he was a guy who was pretty driven. Uh, I don't think much had intimidated him in, a, in the past, but this seemed to intimidate him having all this talent around him. Uh, the songs Still Feeling Blue, Kiss the Children, Streets of Baltimore, that was a cover. Uh, they were coming together fine in the studio, but Graham really was indulging in a lot of cocaine and a lot of liquor on, on, in the sessions. And sometimes he was completely out of it. All right. He had actually put on about 40 pounds of weight in recent months uh, from his drinking. And, you know, somebody had a talk with him. And I think he realized himself too, that he had to pull his shit together to make this album. So he slowed down everything and he, and he got back on his horse and he finished the album properly. Uh, Emmy Lou, Lou Harris is featured prominently on this record singing with him. And, you know, her voice is beautiful. Um, in January of 73, you think he, you GP... You think banger? Yeah. No. I think, I think they, were, they had a little bit of chemistry. I, 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 they, well, I, you know, uh, Amy Lou Harris has said that she had a deep friendship with him that they were never physical. Okay. okay? She said that. But in the weeks before he died, Okay, she came to the realization that she was in love with him. Oh shit! And and she was gonna tell him. His marriage was falling apart with Gretchen. Yeah. Gretchen had a problem with Emmy Lou. Gretchen Gretchen had a problem with Emmy Lou. She sensed there was something. Okay, uh, I think whether or not Graham felt that way is unknown. Okay, because like you know they never were physical. Okay. Uh, and at the end of his life, he was interested in, in Margaret Fish. Yeah. If you remember. So, and his marriage was falling apart. He could have gone with Emmy Lou. He could have went that way. Emmy Lou was, you know, as beautiful then as she is. She's still beautiful. You ever yeah. see her? She's got like that silver hair and yeah. everything. She's very, very pretty. Um, uh, you know, she, I think she has a lot of Emmy Lou has a lot of regret. Uh, and I mean, I mean, she, she, she seems to always speak very highly of Graham. She still does the songs that they play together, but I think maybe she regrets a little bit. She never got to tell him how she felt. It's a sad story really. Cause it, 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 you know, if you listen to the music with them, and and Graham and, and and her her solo stuff is fantastic too, Poncho and Lefty, uh, you know as far as country music goes, that's the kind of country music yeah. I like. And you know I don't like the shit that's out today with it's like pop music, you know. But but the real crying your whiskey, you know, kind of stuff is what I like. Everything on the jukebox and docks, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, now uh, in in January of seventy three. GP, the album, was released and Graham would put this band together called The Fallen Angels. Uh, he also 
asked close friend Phil Kaufman to be the road manager. Uh, he had Jack Bartley on guitar, veteran p- pedal steel player Neil Flans, bass player Kyle Tullis, who played uh, with Dolly Parton in the past, and former Mountain drummer N.D. Smart was his name. Um, so he had you know a heavy drummer playing with him. Um, in the months, the month-long tour to start, Phil Kaufman's road manager duties wasn't just that. He had to actually keep drugs away from Graham and limit his drinking down to as little as he could. Uh, some of the early shows they did were poorly played mm-hmm. because they didn't really rehearse. And Emmy Lou, at some point, who would, you know, joined him on the tour, was part of the whole thing. Um, she would kind of be an important person in getting it all together. And, 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 you know, right away she realized the band had to practice. She demanded that in between shows they would practice. And the later shows on the tour, including a gig at Max's Kansas City here in, in New York and Liberty Hall in Houston, were very well received. I believe Neil Young and Linda Ronstadt were at those gigs in, in, in Houston. Um, uh, though kind of getting it together for the live acts, it didn't translate into any record sales and GP wouldn't chart at all. Uh, they would tour again successfully in the spring and summer of 73 with some new songs in the set for another album that Graham was, was working on, thinking of working on. Uh, but heroin would come back on the scene again with him uh, as well as pills, barbiturates, uh, more drinking. Emmy Lou Harris was kind of like taking care of him at this point. Okay. Like a caretaker role. Um, his relationship with Gretchen deteriorated to a point where they were barely together. All right. Now he had James Burton from Elvis's band again with him to make a second album with uh, Glenn Hardin and Bernie Ledon. He recorded tracks like Hearts on Fire, a new song called $1,000 Wedding. Uh, a track called The Return of the Grievous Angel, yeah. uh, lo- their version of Love Hurts, which is beautiful, uh, a track called In My Hour of Darkness. Um, th- those two, like Love Hurts, In My Hour of Darkness, Emmy Lou still plays these songs. Like Love Hurts is always part of the wow. set. Now, prior to the recording, and I think, I think that's the, you know, everybody likes the, uh, the Nazareth version of Love Hurts. It's more of a, a rock ballad. Everybody knows that. But uh, I, I, I like this version best. There's just, it's such, such a desperate song. Like you just hear the desperation in their voices and everything. It's, it's just beautiful. But prior to the recording on, on, on what would be called Grievous Angel, okay, Chris White, who was the ex-guitarist in The Birds, he died when he was struck by a drunk driver uh, loading up his van to go to a gig in California. That's crazy, man. Uh, now, yeah, yeah. He just got, you know, he was outside his van and he, on the street and got wailed uh, and killed. And, and at the funeral, Graham uh, would sing Father Along, okay? And that evening, he, he made, he made a, a statement to his friend Phil Kaufman and said that if he was to die, his final wish was he wanted to be cremated at the Joshua Tree in California. It's a place he used to hang out, the National yeah, Park. And get high, uh, now all And get high, right. Now, also, in the summer of 73, a stray cigarette 
caused a fire in, in Parsons' house, and it, it burned it down. Uh, it was in the Topanga Canyon area of the home. And he lost everything but one guitar and his car, which was actually a Jaguar. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Graham, Graham went to live with Kaufman. Gretchen, his wife, came along but stayed in a separate room because their relationship was done. Okay. Uh, while he was recording his second and what would be his final album, Grievous Angel, he saw a picture of a girl he knew from his Waycross, Georgia days as a kid. And her name was Margaret Fisher, and he instantly kind of became smitten with her. Uh, she was a singer now in San Francisco, and he connected with her. He, he found her there, and they kind of rekindled their friendship. Now, Margaret, when she came down to Southern California, would stay with Phil and Graham at the Joshua Tree National Park. There's like a, a hotel there, and there's places to drink and eat, and you know, it's like a big national park with like these beautiful, it's in the desert. All right. But there's like these beautiful stone formations. Uh, it's a cool place. I'd love to go there. I've never been there. Um, now, what he used to, he, you know, he'd been going thing, there, Graham, you know, for a one while. Thing you, feel, you forgot to know that Phil Kaufman was also locked up with uh, Charlie Manson for a while. Well, I was going to say that. Uh, yeah, Charlie Manson. Yeah, he was actually friends with him at one point when when Manson did some time. And I think was it sent was where was it? Where did he was two times? I think before, I think but, something was called Terminal Island in the mid sixty. Maybe first, whatever. Or... Maybe 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 he did some time with them. Yeah, I mean, Kaufman is a you know, if you watch the documentary, he's an interesting guy. Um, uh, what, what's uh, Graham's interest in going to Joshua Joshua Tree National Park went back a few years. Uh, he loved the quiet. He loved the vastness of the place. Uh, he went there to relax. Uh, he used to do his acid there and, and even admitted sometimes that he saw UFOs yeah. <laughs> in that location. Okay. But again, LSD was involved. All right. So Parsons, uh, when he was done recording, uh, he was due to tour again, and he wanted to kind of recoup and relax at Joshua Tree before hitting the, the road. So on September 17th, accompanying him was, was Margaret Fisher, personal assistant Michael Martin, and Michael Martin's girlfriend, Dale McElroy. Uh, Phil Kaufman has said that Graham's attorney was actually writing up divorce papers that Gretchen was to receive while he was away. Okay. Now, during that trip, Parsons often went out to the desert by himself alone uh, while the rest would sometimes hang out in, in local bars. But Parsons himself was drinking heavily anyway, and he was consuming large amounts of barbiturates. And on September 18th, Michael Martin went back to L.A. to get some more marijuana for the party. And that night when it was just Parsons and the two girls, Parsons kind of said, you know, he challenged them to like a drinking contest. And and they, you know, Margaret really didn't like to drink too much. So Graham said that he would drink for the three of them. And he did something like six double tequilas, one shot. And the three of them then went to the Joshua Tree Inn where Graham bought some morphine from an unknown woman. Uh, she would inject Graham with it in his hotel room. Uh, and he would overdose right there. 
Now, the two girls didn't know what to do, and they tried to revive him, but they couldn't. And eventually they called for an ambulance. They were trying to give him coffee. They were trying to put him in the shower, whatever it was to wake him up. Uh, the ambulance came, but Graham was declared dead on arrival at High Desert Memorial Hospital. Now, the official cause of it was an overdose of morphine and alcohol. And he was only 26, wow. just short of his 27th birthday. Yeah. But here's where I feel like our rock show is turning into a conspiracy show because it doesn't end right there. Um, immediately what would happen is Graham's stepfather, Robert Parsons, would arrange for the body to be brought to New Orleans where the family yeah. was. Now, there was supposedly a story which I don't think makes sense, where he, Robert Parsons, was due to inherit the trust fund that Graham had, but the only way he could do it was if Graham was to be buried in New Orleans, which would prove his residency. Yeah, that's what it was, the residency. Now, I, I, yeah, but that, but that, I don't know if that, maybe they got crazy laws in Louisiana, but like, just because you're buried somewhere doesn't mean you're a resident, right? Yeah, but that is where your final resting place is, you know? Well, maybe that means that. Maybe it has to do it when you die. Then you are actually a resident. I, I, I don't know. But uh, the daughter of, of, of Robert Parsons, the daughter that came out of the marriage with the, with the baby, yeah. um, she has said that that's not true, okay? That, you know, he wasn't trying to, to get any money that he had money from his wife anyway. Okay. But uh, whether or not that's true, I don't know. But there was also um, the fact that Phil Kaufman had this knowledge that, that Graham wanted his final resting place to be at Joshua Tree. Okay. And he wanted to be cremated there. So Kaufman and a friend of his concocted this plan to steal Graham Parsons' body before it left the Los Angeles airport to be flown back to uh, New Orleans, uh, as was arranged by Graham's stepfather. So they would go down there with a hearse, a rented hearse, (laughs) okay? And somehow bullshit the people in the airport that they were to retrieve the body and not put it on a plane. Okay. Uh, Probably something that could never happen today with the high security we live in. But back in 73, I guess, you know, they they said the right things uh, and they had the hearse. So I guess it looked legit. Okay. But the Los Angeles airport would release the body to Phil Kaufman. They would put it in the back of the hearse and they would make the drive out to Joshua Tree. Okay. Now, once they got there, they had several cans of gasoline. And Kaufman poured it all over the body and the coffin. Uh, said a couple of words and lit a match. And there was a big fireball. Yeah, it was a disaster. And Yeah, yeah. Now, now. Here's the thing you got to mention. It's morbid, but you got to mention it. That's not the proper way to cremate somebody. Okay. When when, when somebody's cremated in real life, okay, in a crematorium, 
it's it's done with super high heat that you would never get from gasoline being poured yeah. on the body. Okay. Also, it has to be a certain amount of degrees for a certain amount of time for the body to be totally cremated down to dust. What happened here is that they just, you know, the body would burn until the gasoline and whatever was there stopped burning. And it ended up really just charring the body, burning the coffin and leaving about 35 pounds of body left. And on top of everything, Kaufman and his buddy just left. They just yeah, left it there. It's just even more. Okay. You know, a, a coffin with a charred body in it. I mean, that's, I mean, whatever Graham had asked to do, I, I don't think he meant that. Okay. So I don't think that Kaufman did his buddy any justice. I think, I think if anything, he, he did a morbid kind of thing in a twisted way. Maybe he had a somewhat good yeah. intention, but to go about it that way was totally wrong. Uh, the, the thing is, is that there's no law stopping this. He, he would actually be arrested a few days later with yeah. his friend, but they would only be fined $750 each for stealing a coffin. All right, there's no law on the books in California, at least at that point, for setting a body on No, that was crazy, man. Okay, I mean, you know, no one ever thought of that one, you know. Now, what well, would happen? I would think I'm doing after... something like that. <laughs> right, there'd be no law on the books for that, you know. It's like, I would think of that. But, yeah, yeah. Now, now, Parson's body would eventually, uh, what was the little bit that was left of it, would be buried in the Garden of Memory Cemetery in uh, Metairie in Louisiana. Uh, that, that's outside New Orleans. Um, you know, and over the years, uh, they, they've actually uh, improved on his gravesite, you know, put a proper monument there and everything because the Joshua Tree location and the location where he's buried in New Orleans uh, has become a bit of a, 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 a you know, a tourist attraction. Okay, for fans. Um, now, Grievous Angel would be released in 1974 posthumously. Okay. Um, I think it's actually the better of the two albums, to be honest with you. That's just my opinion. Uh, and it's actually considered a classic now. Uh, it's always in those top 500, yeah. you know, albums of, of Rolling Stone and all that. Now, you know... Uh, Graham's legacy is, is still here in music. Uh, a lot of people look back at, at what he had done and draw from that, when, especially on the countryside. Um, but I, I think he's somebody that everybody should give a listen to. Uh, really was a talent, and sadly, he had demons. Um, couldn't get past You know what them. the problem? That was just but from he, the family, the whole family, from the mother to the father. There were... Yeah, yeah. I mean, he had a lot of stuff that wasn't his fault okay that you know going on behind on behind the scenes that was hard to deal with which is probably why he did his drugs and he got yeah. and drank and all that you know but uh if you listen to those two solo albums and and it, they've come out in several different packages over the years with extra tracks and remastered and this and that but i actually have a just a simple cd with both albums on 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 wow and yeah, it's very nice. And I listen to it. I still, I've, I've had it for years. It's, it's amazing. So 
That's it. That's what. That's that Grant was Parsons. fucking um pretty fucking good episode, man. I gotta tell you, I learned a lot. But that documentary, if nobody's seen it, the Floating Angel, check mm-hmm. it out. You can find it free. Um, if you look for it, you'll find yeah, it. Yeah, uh, there was a. Yeah, I googled it. I found it free. Uh, Chinese, yeah, some Chinese, Chinese and Japanese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was yeah. in English. Uh, it's not on. Uh, for some reason, it's not on Amazon Prime or Netflix. Uh, and YouTube has like just a few scenes yeah. from it, but if you have a chance to see this documentary, it's worth a it's worth the hour and a half of your time. It's it's fantastic. It is, it is very good, and it does. Yeah. And Keith Richards and Keith Richards oh, yeah. is interviewed, and so it's so fast too. It's not like it drags. It's very good, and the people telling the story no, are fantastic. No, and, t- and then and then when you know when it gets to the end with that sick twist with his after his death and the stealing of the body, you know, yeah. It just makes it just makes the documentary. Yeah, so it's like, holy like, shit, yeah. man! It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Mike, man, another fine job, man. A lot of history we got for Glad Project, and uh, people getting ready for the uh, one hundred show next week. Yep, yep. We're gonna talk about some other things. Uh, we're gonna do a show on Steve Marriott, but maybe we'll, we'll talk a little bit about some other shows that we we had done and reflect back on the last hundred episodes. Yes, we will. And with that, people, remember, don't get drunk. The only podcast you will hear That will be music to your ears It's only here on The Rock Show